Hello, my name is Boyega Odubanjo and this is Oil Music. Call it a love song, I'll get the bathtub ready. I'm in, we in ceramic, let's say black. I'm BP, your shell, we all in, we in the black. We both in a barrel, call it a village. We both in the pumping, the people, no get no nothing. No crabs in the river, no periwinkles to pick. No day they pass where they know they cry, suffer this kind, suffer like this. We no care for them, I just want you to seep. Blacken my lot. The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. This is the Extinction Rebellion podcast. Today's episode is all about energy. And here's Margaret Atwood in London with the pod team last week, giving her view on the current situation. Okay, so there's a plus and a minus. The plus is that many countries are saying, although not necessarily doing, they are saying they're going to have to get off fossil fuels, especially countries that don't have fossil fuels, because it makes them too dependent on other countries that do have fossil fuels with the results that we have seen. You can get held up, as it were, as in this is a stick up. You can be manipulated through your dependence on fossil fuels. The plus is that people have realized that. The minus is that they don't know what to do about it. So as as everyone knows, if you turned off the fossil fuels tomorrow, you would have widespread social chaos and probably also a lot of famine and political coups, and then you would be right back on the fossil fuels. So the problem facing, I would say, everybody is how do you transition with the least pain, chaos, social disruption, and um, extreme factions taking over and totalitarianisms being established? That's where we are, and this has thrown everything into stark relief, shown a spotlight. It is a horrible political and humanitarian situation, but it is also a potential pivot in the need to transition away from fossil fuels. This is the Extinction Rebellion podcast. At the top of the program, you heard Boyego Obdu-Banjo giving a poem, and then you heard Margaret Atwood talking to novelist Toby Litt in London last week. Incidentally, you can hear the long version of that interview over on the Writers' Rebel website. This pre-rebellion episode is all about energy. The aim is to give rebels a grounding in the issue before we begin our actions and hit the streets. Suddenly, this issue is top of the news agenda in relation to the Ukraine, the price crisis, and of course, the climate emergency. And today I'm here with a new presenter who you also heard at the top of the programme, Nula Lam. She's from the media messaging team. Hey, Nula. With the rebellion coming up, you must be pretty busy. Yeah, Jessica, the, the days start to get pretty long this close to rebellion, so things are quite busy, yeah. <laughs> I think we had a conversation at about 10.45 yesterday, so uh, that was true. We were 
both still out then. So energy is the focus for this next rebellion and fossil fuels. Why is that the right focus for April 2022? So since Extinction Rebellion launched in 2018, we've had a huge amount of success in moving the narrative so a lot's changed. It's kind of hard to imagine now, but but three years ago, we really didn't view this as an emergency. That wasn't the mainstream narrative. Um, and so we've, we've had great success in moving that. It hasn't just been Extinction Rebellion, Fridays for Future, all sorts of other things. Starting to actually see the impacts here in the global north have all helped to shift that narrative. But what we haven't seen is the concrete action to stop burning fossil fuels to actually reduce emissions. So the rebellion starting on the 9th of April. This time we're going out with an immediate demand. That's to stop all new investment, licensing and subsidies for fossil fuels. So that basically means stop handing out passes to look for more fossil fuels. Stop pouring money into the industry and stop using taxpayers' money to help the industry sell us more fossil fuels. And actually, at at this point, that's the obvious next step. I mean, the International Energy Agency, who, you know, they're not activists. They're a very mainstream, quite conservative organisation, say, in their pathway to reaching net zero, there's no need for any new investment. And that's from 2021. So they're saying no more new investment, no more new fossil fuels from 2021. So this immediate demand like we think of it as a as a get off the streets demand. If the government meets this, we will go home. So we're setting them a dilemma really in April. So for the launch of this rebellion, uh, we've gone big. Would you tell me uh, why we've done that and what the thinking is? Yeah, so I think by the time people are listening to this, some some fairly kind of high profile and controversial disruptive actions will be underway. And I think the short answer to why we're doing this is that we know we need to be impossible to ignore. So non-violently causing both economic and psychological disruption is really central to XR's understanding of how change happens. We know that economic disruption puts the government in a dilemma. Allow the disruption to continue or crack down on peaceful protesters who are simply asking you to act on your own climate commitments. And then when we talk about psychological disruption, we're really talking about causing controversy. And that's not because we like kicking up a storm. It's because sociologically something very specific happens when you cause controversy on a particular topic. You force people off the fence. You get people to start asking themselves things like, is the climate crisis so urgent that teachers, nurses, priests are willing to sit down in the road and risk being arrested? So inevitably, some people get off the fence on the other side to you. They get off the fence on the wrong side. But that doesn't really matter. So what you're doing is building a critical mass of people who have decided the situation is urgent. And historically speaking, we know that's what shifts things in society. So we aren't the only people who are focusing on fossil fuels right now. Um, Just Stop Oil, for example, are also out there doing their thing. Is this a coincidence or is it coordinated action? And does it really make sense for for this to be on lots of different fronts? Yeah, so I guess the first thing to say is we are working separately from Just Stop Oil, but we do share the same demand to put an end to new fossil fuel development. And actually to give a bit of 
a wider context, we're kind of in a moment of convergence around the need to end fossil fuels. So you have like civil disobedience um, groups and campaign groups like Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, Fridays for Future, BP, Not BP, Stop Cambo, like many, many more than there's time to list here. Um, but also really mainstream bodies like the government's own advisors, the Climate Change Committee, the International Energy Agency, saying we need to get off fossil fuels and we need to do it now. OK, so after the show-stopping opening, what will be happening during the rebellion? So from Saturday, April 9th, we'll be meeting at 10am in Hyde Park in London every day. There'll be some days that are focused on taking action together. There'll be other days that are focused on outreach. Um, but we'll always start together in Hyde Park at 10am. And so every, anyone can join us at that point. There'll be trainings to help you prepare for actions and for knocking on doors, for doing outreach. So the rebellion starting on the 9th of April is really everyone's chance to step up and say, not in my name, to make our government aware that they do not have the democratic mandate to destroy the conditions on which the habitability of our planet depends. OK, and I'm going to give a tiny plug for an event which is on the 15th of April, which is Good Friday, and that's Writers Rebel event, The Antidote, in which lots of big writers who are also great performers, such as Lem Sisse, Patience Agabi and Ali Smith, uh, will be entertaining rebels um, and also informing them. Now it's time to turn to our main interview... This is with Richard Black, the BBC's former environment correspondent, who is also an independent energy expert. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Now, before we were talking to you about denial, and that podcast went really well, actually. Lots of people listened in. But today we're talking energy, which is a subject that you're also something of an expert on. It's everywhere, isn't it? The Ukraine war, there was an energy crisis before, and not to mention the climate crisis. So it's the subject of the moment, but it's very complicated. So I'm hoping that you'll be able to explain and go from first principles in some instances for our listeners. But first of all, welcome. And this week, we heard that the government put its energy plan on ice. What's that all about then? Yes, it's very nice to be with you. And thanks for all your kind words. I'll certainly try to shed as much light on it as any other person in the dark can. There's clearly some disagreement between the cabinet about what the best thing to do is. You've basically got one faction that wants to do the progressive, sensible, popular things like invest in energy efficiency, unleash the pent-up desire of investors and communities to build onshore wind and so on, things like this. And then you've got another faction that basically seems to think that, oh, there's a gas shortage, so we should get more gas out then, seems to think that's the solution. And there are people, I think, who want all of the above as well. And I think there's also some resistance from the Treasury to spending public money. Before we look at that in a little bit more detail... Would you mind just talking me through a little bit of the recent history? So we're already having a little bit of an energy crisis and a price hike before the Ukraine war, and then the Ukraine war came along. So would you mind telling us how that happened and also how one of those things affects the other? 
So the key commodity here is gas. And the COVID pandemic really is what started it off because during the initial months of the COVID pandemic, obviously it was you know a bit hard for people to go to work in many circumstances. And so a lot of maintenance work on gas platforms and so on wasn't done, which meant that there was a bit of a shortfall in supply. And then the previous winter actually ended up being quite cold and being quite cold for a long time. So that raised gas demand, especially in Europe and China and other parts of Asia. So we've got less gas coming into the system than usual because of the effect of COVID on the workforce and so on. And then we've got a greater than than usual gas demand because of the cold weather. So as we were in the middle of last year, the gas price was already high. Now that meant that, for example, in Europe, companies did not fill up the gas storage facilities that normally they would have done because gas was just more expensive and I suppose they were waiting for it to become cheaper. Of course, it's very hard to read the mind of Vladimir Putin, but my suspicion is that he saw this as an opportunity to exert more leverage in Europe and deliberately turn the taps down a bit. Of course, Europe does get a massive amount of gas from Russia And so basically, that's why we saw the price going up, not only in Europe, but also further afield in Asia as well. And in fact, parts of Asia, it wasn't just a price issue, there just wasn't enough gas to go around. And so there was a certain amount of forced turning off going on in Asia. So that's where we are at the moment. And then the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think it's had two separate impacts here. One is that the supplies from Russia have not come back up to what they would have been their normal state, plus the fact that a lot of countries and indeed companies have decided they don't want to buy Russian gas anymore. So obviously everyone's scrambling for the gas that there is available from other countries. And then also this has now spilled over into oil as well because Russia is a major exporter of both crude oil and diesel in particular to the UK and other countries in Europe. So if that's now being blocked, there's a scramble for other supplies. And again, the price is going up. So that's where we're at, really. Okay, it was very interesting. Even before the invasion, people were saying, oh, we're short, so let's start fracking. And then I noticed that when the invasion of the Ukraine happened, a lot of people from the contrarian side, shall we say, started saying, oh, let's start fracking. It seems like, according to a certain minority of MPs in Parliament, fracking is the answer to everything. But actually, fracking was only going to give us quite a small contribution, I believe. What's your view on that? Yes, exactly. I think that's right. There is a constituency there that's decided that fracking is the answer to everything. And there's another constituency that's decided that getting more oil and gas out of the North Sea is the answer to everything as well. And so they have used this crisis to argue for what they're always arguing for. Anyway, the reality of fracking in the UK, you could only ever get tiny amounts out compared with the supplies that are coming in, you know, from Russia and and Qatar and so on, even compared with the supplies that come from the UK part of the North Sea. The public is against it. Opinion polls over the years show public opinion hardening against it. There are very, very few investors actually that really want to put money in. I mean, we hear about, you know, those companies like Quadrilla and so on. 
that are keen to do it. But these are relatively small companies. There's no interest from the really big players in the oil and gas business. It's a marginal thing. That particular coterie of conservative MPs, they tend to look to the United States and what they see in the United States they love. And this applies in many areas of life, actually, whether it's the way you should run a health service, the way you should run broadcasting, etc. And they see shale gas being you know, success in the US. And they think, well, we should do that as well then. But of course, there are many, many differences. The sheer density of population in the UK is much higher than in those areas of the US where fracking happens. Land rights are different. You know, in the US, you own all the land under your feet, whereas in the UK, you don't, which obviously changes the sort of commercial incentive for people to want fracking on their land. And one of the other issues that I think is often overlooked is that fracking in the US, although it's, you know, produces a lot of gas and it's very successful, the industry runs on debt. And it's not at all clear to me that banks in the UK would want to finance an industry which probably, you know, is going to be relatively short term and relatively risky. And quite unpopular as well. So, Richard, let's go to real brass tacks. Do you think it's possible for clean energy to replace fossil fuel and nuclear energy and for us to keep growing in the way that we've become accustomed to? Yes, uh, I've absolutely no doubt. So uh, there are really two questions I think wrapped up in that. One is, can a country like the UK run entirely on electricity that's generated from renewables? And I think the answer is yes. I think we know how to do it. There have been various studies in other countries as well showing that this can be done. It's not as straightforward, I think, as having a few big fossil fuel-fired power stations, as well as the generation. You need to invest in a lot of mechanisms that balance supply and demand. And there are really four categories of things that are necessary. One is demand shifting, which is sometimes called demand response. So basically, at times of very high demand and therefore high price, consumers are able to turn off non-essential processes and have them running at a cheaper time. You know, the obvious example is something like a you know washing machine or a dishwasher or something where you don't particularly care whether it runs from 11 to 12 at night or whether it runs from 3 to 4 in the morning, as long as it's done by the time you wake up, you're happy. Similarly, charging your electric car, you could do that in the wee small hours as well. Exactly, which is, you know, far, far bigger quantities of electricity. Paradoxically, in a way, that's used a lot in the States and it does help to keep the lights on. So some of the recent extreme weather, they've had extreme cold weather, for example, in the northeast. Demand shifting has really helped keep the lights on at those times. So we need much, much more investment in that in the UK. The second one is storage. And it's not just batteries because you need really long term storage as well. The third one is interconnection with other countries, so you share electricity. And then the fourth one you know, is power stations that are designed to turn on for very short periods of time, which could be fired with gas. Probably in the future, they'll be fired with hydrogen. But provided all of that happens and provided you know the grid is strengthened and there's enough smart tech there to do all the switching and data sensing and so on, there's no reason why the UK grid couldn't run on 100% clean energy. I've seen nothing to say that it couldn't. And indeed, National Grid expects that by 2025, just three years' time, there will be periods of the year when it is running on basically renewables plus the relatively small amount of nuclear generation that's still on the system. So if National Grid is convinced that that can work, it's not a terrible leap, I think, forward to say that one could be using 100% renewables in the future. You mentioned hydrogen back there. Now, I think this gets a little bit confusing, doesn't it? Because my understanding is that there are two different ways of using hydrogen, and one of them 
has carbon implications and the other doesn't. Would you mind explaining that? Yes, there are two questions over hydrogen. One is the production and the other is what is it sensible to use hydrogen for? So on the production side, you've basically got two ways of making a low carbon hydrogen. So at the moment, hydrogen is made through a process called steam methane reforming. The process produces carbon dioxide. So the hydrogen that's made now with that process tends to be called grey hydrogen. So obviously there's no future for that in a zero carbon world. You have to do something else. So one of the methods is to use the same process but fit a carbon capture and storage facility on the back of it. So natural gas goes in, or fossil gas if you prefer. Hydrogen comes out, the carbon dioxide is captured and is piped down into you know, a cavern under the seabed or something like this where it's locked away for ages. And then the other way of making it, which is called green hydrogen, is basically using electricity where you split water into hydrogen and oxygen using a piece of equipment called an electrolyzer. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in what are the relative economics of these. And the studies around at the moment suggest that blue hydrogen would be cheaper for a while. But in the end, green hydrogen will get cheaper. But there are problems with the blue hydrogen route. One of them is that it's not entirely carbon neutral. You know, carbon capture is not a 100% efficient process. There's always some CO2 that escapes. So that means you're going to have to do something else to mitigate that bit of CO2 escape. Another thing is, of course, it's keeping alive the sort of fossil fuel infrastructure. So you're keeping the gas wells in business, you're keeping the gas companies in business, you're keeping some of the pipelines in business and so on. A lot of people look at that and think, well, that's not a terribly smart thing to do. Also, carbon capture and storage can only work when there's a really big and long-term commitment from government. The same sort of deal that was done for the Hinkley power station, but actually on steroids, because ultimately all the pipes, the kind of pumping, the storage, all that kind of stuff is expensive and it's got to be properly regulated and so on and so forth. So I think there's a political risk that when it comes to it, you know, the government actually doesn't commit to that carbon capture and storage thing. By contrast, green hydrogen can be made pretty much by anyone who's got some spare electricity. So we're seeing some offshore wind companies, for example, saying, well, fine, times when we're generating more electricity than the grid can need, we'll actually produce some hydrogen. Interestingly, EDF, which is looking to build a second new nuclear power station at Sizewell in Essex, Last time I spoke to them, they were planning to put a hydrogen electrolyzer alongside the power station because they know that in summer their electricity won't be needed in the grid. So why not use it to generate hydrogen? So basically, you know, if you've got a solar farm, if you want to, you can set up a hydrogen electrolyzer. So I think, you know, the route to doing it through green hydrogen, A, it's cleaner. B, it's politically more tenable, I think, and C, it's going to become more economic faster as well. Yes, yeah, so it sounds like it's in the same kind of category as renewables. It was quite interesting when the energy crisis hit, even though renewables are cheaper. <laughs> a lot of people were saying, oh, and what we need is more fossil fuel. And it's very hard to kind of get there from a baseline of mathematics that the opposition, the renewables, are actually cheaper. During the crisis, we noticed that XR, that you did a very useful Twitter thread that was about exports of gas. And that helped ground us because every time something big happens, because this is quite a complicated area, for those of us who aren't energy experts, it feels quite hard to kind of re-stabilise yourself with what's going on and what the truth is behind it. 
Do you know the Twitter thread that I'm talking about, Richard? I think you became quite celebrated around it. I think I do. It's my most successful Twitter thread ever by a very long way. I think about three million views or something crazy like that. It was interesting because I'd seen a news story back in September on this specialist publication called Platts that reports on the energy market. So September was when the price crisis was really getting underway and Platts reported that for four days there'd been record exports of gas from the UK and I was thinking, well, this is very interesting. So I just waited for the next round of government figures to come out that give you production, consumption, imports and exports and various other things on gas and the the figures come out every month and they're always a couple of months behind. So the UK is a net importer of gas. So gas comes in and a smaller amount of gas flows out. And there's also obviously a certain amount of storage in the UK as well. So I was looking at the export figures for September, October, November, and then subsequently I did it for December as well when those figures came out. And the amount of gas being exported was substantially higher. I mean, twice as high as in the corresponding months in the few previous years. And it had been annoying me for quite a long time that politicians and some journalists keep talking about our gas. We should invest in our gas Well, actually, the entire industry is private sector. So gas that is extracted from the North Sea or, you know, if gas were to be fracked as well, it's not our gas. It belongs to whatever company got it out the ground. And so in this case, they were basically, you know, selling it through the pipelines to Europe because they could get a higher price for it. So I thought that was quite a good way to sort of illustrate this fact that there's actually no such thing as our gas And as you were saying, the Twitter thread went crazy. So I guess a a lot of people, I think it seemed to me, were quite surprised to find out that gas extracted in Britain isn't sort of reserved for British customers. But there it is, it isn't. And oil, the picture's even worse, I suppose you could say, because, you know, four-fifths of the oil that's extracted from the North Sea goes straight out of the UK. So this idea of self-sufficiency, certainly in oil, It's just crazy. It's a line that we keep on reading and keep on hearing from politicians. We should invest in our gas and oil, but there's no such thing. And the fracking argument, it just knocks it out of the way. There's no argument for it. Increasing production in that very difficult way for 15% or something of what we need that will probably just be exported or we won't have any control over it just seems a complete nonsense. I was interested when you were talking earlier about responses going forward and ways to address the energy crisis, you didn't talk about insulation. That's my mea culpa on that because it is the first and most logical thing that almost whatever question you ask in energy, the first answer logically is use less of it. It's an absolute no-brainer. And Britain has the leakiest homes in Western Europe. It's been like that for years now. And successive governments basically have not grappled with this. They've always kicked it into the long grass. The last time we had a really effective energy efficiency policy was something called CERT, which came to an end just over 10 years ago. So that was successful. Then we had, in the early days of the coalition between the Conservatives and the Lib Dems, we had the Green Deal, which really didn't work. And it's been a pig's ear ever since, to be honest. But it is absolutely the best thing to do. So you save energy, which is obviously very good for the country. People's bills are cheaper as a result. You need less Russian gas or Saudi oil or whatever. And you're creating jobs up and down the country. If you sort of take oil and gas versus insulation, which is a very crude way to do it, but if we do that, you see that the vast majority of oil and gas jobs are around Aberdeen or a few other cities and they're offshore. Big sort of, you know, international workforce kind of thing. 
Insulation is overwhelmingly small companies based in towns and cities throughout the UK. So you're really putting money in all over the country. And those will be British firms, often family firms, sustainable jobs grounded in the community. And there's really no downside to doing this as well. The other thing is that it's incredibly popular. Surveys show that there's kind of you know, 90% odd support for spending public money on making homes more energy efficient. Now, most politicians would give their grandmother's eye teeth for a policy that commanded 90% <laughs> public support, but somehow it's still not happening. It's almost as if the fossil fuel industry is kind of macho and a bit dangerous and renewables are a little bit silly and girly and that Parliament can't quite bring itself to do it. But we're also so dependent on them, aren't we? Because it's not just the fossil fuels itself. You know, Vaseline that I put on my lips is a byproduct of that industry. The pesticides and the fertilizers are also connected. So all of our world really is part of this mesh that fossil fuels are part of. And yet it's very clear we have to rid ourselves of fossil fuels. How are you feeling about that? We're nowhere close to doing what's required, are we? No, no, we're not. Um, so the IPCC has been looking at this and clearly the amount of fossil fuel infrastructure that is either in existence or planned if all of that produces all of the oil and gas and coal that the people in charge are assuming, then basically we blow past the 1.5 Celsius global warming guardrail already. So that's the bleak side of it. I have to say, though, one thing that has impressed me has been the response of the European Union in particular to the Ukraine crisis. Because, yes, they are looking, it's true, at sort of securing additional supplies of gas from other countries than Russia. But they are also overwhelmingly moving towards accelerating the clean energy rollout and accelerating energy efficiency. A number of us have argued for years that actually your energy policy and your foreign policy need to be tied together because if you're reliant on fossil fuels, you are basically giving another country a certain amount of power over your diplomacy. And that's I think, why we've seen countries going softly, softly on Russia over the past decade. But now this, the chickens come really come home to roost with a massive, massive vengeance. And it's very, very clear that by allowing Russia the dominant supply position that they have, they've basically lost all the kind of diplomatic leverage that they had over Russia for years. But now they seem to have got it back with a confidence and a solidity that I think probably would have astounded Vladimir Putin as well as a number of other onlookers. And at least judging by their words, they are quite serious now across Europe about really accelerating the transition away from fossil fuels. Politically, it's quite interesting that the main countries in Europe that have been opposed to making this transition, the Visegrad group, as they're called, which has been Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary, and they've tended to act as a block sort of slowing European policymaking. Well, that block's been blown apart now because the Hungarian government is still trying to cosy up to Russia. And the other three governments have basically said, no, 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 we're not doing that. No way. So that's very interesting going forward. So it's hard to sort of talk about finding any light in the Ukraine situation, which is absolutely awful. But if you want to find a piece of light, I think that is it in the way that the European Union is now talking about its future energy policy. Let's get back to the UK now. So the Conservative government want to follow Glasgow 
findings. We have the Climate Change Committee working out how to put into action the ideas that were put together in Paris before that. And yet, stasis, there is absolutely no move forward. I mean, the cars are coming on in 2025, but apart from that, which was laid down as a policy quite a long time ago, we seem to be in a kind of stalemate. Now, at the beginning of the programme, you said, yes, it's hard to sort of speculate about what's going on there. We at Extinction Rebellion take seriously those people like Sir David King, who said what happens in the next two or three years might affect the next millennium. So we're going to be targeting oil and gas for our next rebellion. How do you feel about us doing that? Will you come and join us or do you... (laughs) Are you glad that we're out there doing it so you can be more moderate? (laughs) To focus on oil and gas is a sound move because quite simply, as the IPCC and others are now laying out, it is basically the extent of fossil fuel burning and the extent of investment in future fossil fuel capacity. That will either decide whether we do actually keep temperatures to 1.5 Celsius or whether we blow past it. And as we know, the International Energy Agency, who've traditionally been a very, very conservative body on this, came out and said, basically, we shouldn't have any more fossil fuel infrastructure. So I do think that that connection now, which is, of course, it's always been there between the size of the fossil fuel industry and what happens with climate change. It's always been there, but it's so starkly on the table now that I think that is the place to focus. Absolutely. Finally, last time we talked, we were focusing more on the climate contrarians. Since then, I can't remember, it may have been around then or since then, Net Zero Watch has been set up, which is a kind of development of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. And it has MP Steve Baker, the hard man of Brexit, as a trustee. But there also is in Parliament the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, who are a group of 20, they're not all MPs, Peter Lilly is in the House of Lords, but a grouping who are really pushing back against the government policies. And they seem to have access to the Telegraph, the Spectator, the Times, the Mail, the Sun. They're making a hell of a lot of noise considering what a little group they were. I think you were thinking that they maybe had gone on the back foot But actually, they've been sort of like Terminator. They've been reforming and they're coming out quite strongly, aren't they? I think that's a very good way of putting it, actually. I was visualising the sort of liquid metal Terminator as you were (laughs) speaking there. Nimble and dangerous. (laughs) Three or four years ago, they were basically a busted flush, really. And I think that was partly because right across the Conservative Party leadership, there was unanimity about net zero I mean, what really struck me was when Theresa May stepped down, there were 11 candidates for Conservative leader. Ten of them, the one exception being Esther McVeigh, came out and said they absolutely backed the net zero target. That was part of their pitch to their fellow Conservatives. So that was then. But as you say, this is now. And uh, Steve Baker and Craig McKinley and so on appear to be building a reasonable block. I think one has to take their claims of how many supporters they have with a slight pinch of salt because they used to claim, I think it was 43 and it turned out to be 20. And now I saw one report they're claiming 58. Well, let's see what that actually turns out to be. 
The reality is that there are way more Conservative MPs who are in support of clean energy and sound environmental policy. The Conservative Environment Network, which is you know, the kind of caucus for them, has got something like 130 Conservative MPs on their side. But nevertheless, I think they have to be taken seriously. As usual with the climate contrarians, they have a simplicity of argument, which is quite appealing unless you actually spend about five seconds thinking about it. So, you know, as a kind of obvious thing, uh, gas is expensive because we import it all, so we need more gas. Let's get it ourselves. <laughs> it's an intuitively appealing, simple argument. It doesn't stand up to any scrutiny, but there you are. There's a couple of other things at play here. One is I think there is genuine concern about the cost of living um, because, you know, from a political basis, if the cost of living really becomes a massive issue for a huge number of Britons, then that will not be good for the Conservatives when it comes to the next election. And the other thing is, I think, the sort of fight for the post-Boris Johnson leadership as well. So there's a certain tribalism that tends to come out in politics at this particular time. And we know for sure that, you know, Liz Truss, who's obviously going to be one of the leading contenders, has not historically been a massive supporter of decarbonisation. Rishi Sunak seems to be relatively lukewarm. He has a picture of Nigel Lawson on his office wall. Make of that what you will. So there's a certain amount of kind of jockeying for position going on as well. The other factor here, of course, is that Boris Johnson, who does seem to have had a bit of a Damascene conversion on this and does seem to be pretty well convinced of the benefits of clean energy, he, of course, is in a kind of a weak position at the moment because of Partygate. So I think his chance of really stamping his authority on the cabinet and saying, no, this is what we're doing, it's not the best time for him to be trying to do that. So all of that is coming together. And as you were saying earlier, we are therefore in this position of stasis where the rhetoric is there. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has added the most existential of reasons to the already impressive pile of reasons for wanting to press on with decarbonisation. And yet those extra bits of policy making aren't really at the moment happening. Yeah, so that's, I think, where we are at the moment. Have you been aware of a little campaign called Steve Baker Watch? Yes, I read about that in the paper. I've seen Steve Baker tweeting about it as well. So it'd be interesting to see what happens with that. I think it's great that constituents are standing up and saying, actually, what are you doing about the environment? And we don't really agree with you going off-piste and not following the Conservative Party line when you were elected on a manifesto that included that. Well, this is true, isn't it? Because they often say, you know, Parliament didn't vote on it and there's no mandate. But as you said, they stood on a manifesto that was explicit. I think it was on page three. I, I may I may be misremembering. But it was very clear what they stood for. And they were very happy to stand on that as, as well. There are a couple of things that they tend to say about the kind of net zero commitment, which aren't terribly true. So one thing you hear is that it's an arbitrary target. Well, of course, it's not an arbitrary target at all. The net zero target is derived from science. And if someone says something like, I believe in combating climate change, but actually this net zero stuff is a bit of a nonsense. Well, that argument is crazy because getting to net zero emissions globally on the time frame that the IPCC has said, that is combating climate change. There's no other way to do it. You can't magic up a solution that doesn't involve getting to net zero on that timeline. The other thing that tends to be a bit of a nonsense as well is this sort of invocation of magical technologies. So, well, we should do it, but actually we need small modular nuclear reactors to do it or we need hydrogen for everything to do it. No, you don't. Look at what is actually working in the real world. That's where you get your solutions from. You know, things like small modular reactors may or may not 
ever become a thing. Hydrogen, yeah, we will need a bit of hydrogen, but not half as much as some of the proponents claim. So go with what works. Do the sensible stuff. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, well, I know you're living in Berlin, but you have an invitation to come and join us on the streets later in the month. But we'll please cheer away from over in Europe as we're doing it, putting a lot of pressure on the government to focus down on its fossil fuel policies. Thank you so much for your time, Richard. You've done a lot of really clear explaining of areas that can seem quite muddy and complicated. Thanks so much for having me, as always. So, Nula, what are your thoughts? He seemed to be suggesting that we can keep renewables and continue on the path of growth. Is that how you read it? Yeah, so I feel like it's useful to put the conversation in a wider context um, in a way. So I think we really need to face the fact that the crisis is happening now. We are living the climate crisis now. So we know like in the Caribbean, for instance, that the storms are now so severe and so frequent that the question isn't for people just how they rebuild their homes, but it's whether to rebuild their homes in their communities, in the places where their culture is, Mm. is grounded. And like that there's record numbers of children displaced in the Caribbean now as a result of storms. We saw flooding on tube trains in London. We saw people dying as a result of flooding on tube trains in in China last summer. So I just want to put in that context the idea that we can continue our kind of current lifestyles and just switch them over to renewables. Most recent IPCC report, the UN Secretary General said, delay means death. Mm -hmm. So so that's the context we're having this conversation in. And and there's also a question around the extraction that is um, a part of, of uh, switching over to renewable energy. If we want to kind of supply energy to a lifestyle like our own now, that requires a huge amount of extraction. And that has an impact on the countries in the global south as well. So all of those things have to be part of the conversation. And, and really, I'm kind of quite sceptical of the idea that we can transfer our current lifestyles over to renewables and just carry on as usual. So I guess that's my view of the situation, but Extinction Rebellion doesn't exist to take power or to make decisions. Ultimately, we want to create the political space for a citizens' assembly to come together and and decide the way forward. I also thought that his point about the fact that in this year of the crisis, we have exported more gas than in the previous two years is such a strong one. Um, We don't own our own energy. It's part of a market. And so all these people advocating things like fracking, which would only add to the market, aren't really addressing what the problem is. So thank you for joining me today, Nula. This pre-rebellion episode uh, has the aim of informing rebels before they take to the streets about what is going on right now with energy and the sort of arguments they will encounter. Um, But we're just about to go into a rebellion, so our call to action is to get on the streets, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's really simple. April 9th, 10am, Hyde Park, be there. Don't let this happen in your name. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I'm definitely going to be there. So you've been listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'd like to thank Margaret Atwood for agreeing to be part of it. I'd also like to thank the poet Boyego Obubanjo 
and also to my co-host Nula Lam from the media and messaging team. Uh, and I'd also love to thank the great people here at Soho Radio who've given us studio time and their generous support, uh, both for this podcast and over the years. And finally, to warm us up for rebellion and to that call to action that Nula just gave, let's listen once again to most of the speech of Antonio Guterres after the last IPCC report, which reminded us why we are acting and the place that fossil fuels has in that picture. Dear representatives of the media, I've seen many scientific reports in my time, but nothing like this. Today's IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. With fact upon fact, this report reveals how people and the planet are getting clobbered by climate change. Nearly half of humanity is living in the danger zone now. Many ecosystems are at the point of no return now. And checked carbon pollution is forcing the world's most vulnerable on a frog march to destruction now. The facts are undeniable. This abdication of leadership is criminal. That spells catastrophe. It will destroy any chance of keeping 1.5 alive. Today's report underscores two core truths. First, coal and other fossil fuels are choking humanity. All G20 governments have agreed to stop funding coal abroad. They must now urgently do the same at home and dismantle their coal fleets. Those in the private sector still financing coal must be held to account. Oil and gas giants and their underwriters are also on notice. You cannot claim to be green while your plans and projects undermine the 2050 net zero target and ignore the major emission cuts that must occur this decade. People see through the smoke screen. OECD countries must phase out coal by 2030 and all others by 2040. The present global energy mix is broken. As current events make all too clear, our continued reliance on fossil fuels makes the global economy and energy security vulnerable to geopolitical shocks and crises. Instead of slowing down the decarbonization of the global economy, now is the time to accelerate the energy transition to a renewable energy future. Fossil fuels are a dead end for our planet, for humanity, and yes, for economies. A prompt, well-managed transition to renewables is the only pathway to energy security, universal access, and the green jobs our world needs. I'm calling for developed countries, multilateral development banks, private financiers, and others to form coalitions to help measure emerging economies and the use of coal. These targeted mechanisms of support would be over and above existing sustainable development needs. The second core finding from this report is slightly better news. Investments in adaptation work. Adaptation saves lives. As climate impacts worsen, and they will, scaling up investments will be essential for survival. Adaptation and mitigation must be pursued with equal force and urgency. That is why I've been pushing to get the 50% of all climate finance for adaptation. The Glasgow commitment on adaptation funding is not enough to meet the challenges faced by nations on the front lines of the climate crisis. I'm also pressing to remove the obstacles that prevent small island states and least developed countries from getting the finance they desperately need to save lives and livelihoods. We need new eligibility systems to deal with this new reality.
Delay means death. I take inspiration from all those on the front lines of the climate battle fighting back with solutions. All development banks, multilateral, regional, national, know what needs to be done. Work with governments to design pipelines of bankable adaptation projects and help them find the funding, public and private. And every country must honor the Glasgow Pledge to strengthen national climate plans every year until they are aligned with 1.5 degrees Celsius. The G20 must lead the way or humanity will pay an even more tragic price. I know people everywhere are anxious and angry. I am too. Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference and every second counts. Thank you. The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion.